Hi, welcome to GRC and Me, a podcast where we interview governance, risk, and compliance thought leaders on hot topics, industry-specific challenges, and trends to learn about their methods, solutions, and outlook in the space, and hopefully have a little fun doing it. Uh, I'm your host, Chris Clark. Uh, with me today is Ginger Carrick, the Chief Strategy Officer at Barrios Technology, a woman-owned and operated small business that supports the aerospace community to advance humanity on and off planet. Prior to Barrios, uh, Ginger worked for the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or uh, NASA, as it's sometimes referred to, uh, where she spent over 29 years in roles such as Flight Director and Deputy Director of Exploration, Integration, and Science Directorate and the Johnson Space Center Assistant Director for Vision and Strategy. Ginger, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Like, what's your journey been with NASA? Oh, sure, happy to do that. And thanks for having me on today. I um, I always wanted to work for NASA. When I was five years old, I decided I wanted to work for NASA. And instead of my mom thinking I was crazy, she's like, all right, what's your plan? And uh, I didn't have one, luckily she did, which was, you know, study math and science and and, um, pay attention to your parents and do well and and in school and go to college. And so sure enough, I did all those things and I was able to achieve my dream of working for NASA. And I started there in 1991 and retired from there in 2021. So I had an awesome 30-year career um, and adventures at every turn. Where, um, what was your imagine NASA does a lot of things like what was like where were what were some of the cool aspects of that that you worked on oh gosh I had so many so one of the big ones is I got to live and work in Russia um I never thought I would go there but um I got sent there to support the very first crew that was going to fly on board the International Space Station so we've had the space station up there um flying since the 1998 but I started with NASA shortly before that. So it was really cool to be part of something from the that you're establishing from the ground up. But living in Russia, I didn't know Russian. I go out there, I know the alphabet. And uh, uh, I realize I'm in trouble pretty fast. But I made friends and I learned technical Russian first um, because I was in classes with the crew, riding procedures, that kind of thing. And then we made friends. So then I started learning conversational Russian at home with those guys. So that was really great. Um, another exciting adventure was working in mission control. I was the first person that NASA ever allowed that was not an astronaut to sit at the console that's called Capcom, which is short for capsule communicator. It's the person that talks to the crew. So when they say, Houston, we have a problem, it's the person that answers and says, hey, yo, what's your problem? but a little bit more freshly like than that. So uh, I did that job for four years and it was awesome. Um, and then I got to be a flight director, the person in charge of mission control. So those were three of my highlights in my career, but um, inside of each one of those are, are different things that um, I'm happy to have participated in. Uh, it was, it was a, it was a wonderful career. That's like, I'm, I'm actually genuinely speechless because that's like something that you you know, you see in media, but it's incredible to talk to someone who's done that and like seen that. And I, I mean, uh, um, would, you know, you, you mentioned in the beginning, like how you, you didn't have a plan for how to get there, but your, you know, your mom did. And clearly it's <laughs> been 30 years with NASA. What, um, what piece of career advice would you give to someone who's kind of like looking for their path? 
Well, I think two things. One, I'll map out a plan for it um, and uh, be prepared, be prepared for that plan to divert <laughs> a divert course from your original path that you laid out for you. Um, but two, don't be afraid to try something new. I've come across a lot of people in my career that, um, oh, no, I'm not going to apply for that job because I'm not ready. I don't know everything. Well, guess what? No one does. They just don't say it out loud. And so be bold and think about the last time that you started something new when you didn't know everything and how it it turned out okay. And it's going to turn out okay again, as long as you put forth the effort and put a plan together. I love that. I appreciate that. I, uh, I, I mean, I love trying new things. So I, 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 I think some people worry that the the risk is too high when it comes to their careers and their to really take those chances in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think a lot of people shortchange themselves. Hmm. Um, so, uh, real, I, I do want to come back to this concept of of you know risk in your in the career. But before we jump in there, I always like to kind of like start a little bit with like risk management in real life and thinking about kind of like we you know we often talk about it in the terms of you know professional space but um we also make risk decisions every day um one like the example that i would give is uh i'm i'm a big snacker my wife and i like love <laughs> snacks and we like love like sweets so anytime we go into a store where they like have those around I'm like oh well like why not just like get this you know bag of chips or like this thing of candy um and heb our texas grocery store uh they are awesome in that they do pick up well one they're awesome in the things that they have and that's why we can't go into the store <laughs> but they'll do pick up so like one of the ways my like wife and i avoid this risk of being snackers is we will only do store pickup from there we will not oh, go in. well we, we order online and that's how we kind of like i would say we avoid the the snack risk by only ordering online the things that we know are like what we want and so that's my that's my like risk in real life example <laughs> if you have something ginger that <laughs> yeah we all experience it every day i mean i wake up my alarm goes off and i hit the snooze button and that's and, and i'm thinking okay can I continue to hit this button and still, you know, walk the dog, eat breakfast, get and you know, make it on time for work? That's risk management. Or, or um, oh, definitely at the gym. I go to Orange Theory, and they were trying to get me to do some exercise yesterday, and I'm like, no. You want to know why? Because I have a slap tear, and I know that if I do cleans or overhead presses, I run the risk of aggravating my slap tear. So no, I'm going to do hammer curls. Thank you very much. And uh, I'll be happier. You'll be happier because I'll continue to keep coming here. So we we make these basic decisions every day, but people don't realize that they are doing risk management, risk assessment, risk mitigation. I, I do love that example. And um, <laughs> it's, it's interesting because like you probably didn't go into Orange Theory thinking like, I'm not going to do clean presses oh, today yeah right? i'm gonna do whatever they throw at me today. right exactly um and i i think this kind of goes out to tie together a little bit with what you talked about like as a flight director and in mission control of like 
you have to make these risk decisions in real time. So I'd be interested in like how how do you approach kind of like real time risk trade off decisions and like how do you think about m- making those decisions when you don't have time to prepare? Yeah, so I'll I'll start in mission control because that's an easier example for me. But um, so you you prepare yourself. You can never prepare yourself for everything you're going to see in mission control or in life. But you can prepare yourself for certain things, and the thought process that you use to do that will help you deal with events that are unexpected. So in at NASA, we we knew that we had three primary goals whenever we're sitting there in mission control protect the crew, uh, protect the vehicle, their spacecraft, and and be able to execute the mission. So those are the three things we keep in the back of our head and we judge our risks associated with all of that. Now, in, in human spaceflight, the urgency factor is um, a little different than most uh, office jobs, but not unlike you know what our military or or first responders or healthcare professionals face because they are faced with these life and death scenarios. And knowing that it makes it easier for you to make a decision. And so something, say something um, will happen, something fails. My first thing is, is is the crew safe? Okay. Um, All right. I don't need to take any immediate action to save the crew. Is the vehicle safe? Yes. All right. Are we going to be able to execute today's mission? Yeah. Tomorrow's mission? No. Okay, let's dig into that and figure out what can we do to make sure we can execute tomorrow's mission. Um, but it's a methodical, non-emotionally based approach to assessing risk. And you have to be able to take those emotions, that those natural human emotions that you're feeling when you're faced with a situation like that and set them aside um, because they're, they're not conducive to the logical thought process that you need to execute to arrive at a, at a solution. How- is, are there, I don't want to say like training or how do you, like, what is the development that you go through to start to make those kind of like, to learn that methodology and almost to take emotion out of the decision-making process? Yeah, at, we, we, we have great training at work. And, and um, you know, I, I, when I worked in mission control, I worked for an organization called, um, the flight operations directorate. And that had our astronauts, our people that work in mission control and the people that train both of those to do those jobs. And when we get new employees in, we actually send them to something called boot camp, And we, we take their brains and their concept of the world that they knew and we remold them into um, almost, it, I don't want to, I don't want to diminish what our military folks do by saying it's military style, but it the approach is very similar in that um, there's a reprogramming that occurs. And now when you look at the world, you will think of the crew, the vehicle, and the mission. And um, we put them in scenarios where if they do have an emotional response and they can't complete their mission, um, we we you know, they'll be physically removed. They know that they're not allowed to, you aren't allowed to do that. And so we, we train them, we keep giving them scenarios so that it almost desensitizes them from the emotional aspect because they realize they can't do their job if, if they are spiking emotionally. So we'll have simulations. Um, We review 
anything that we think can possibly fail on the vehicle, and we document that if this fails, we're going to run this procedure. Um, if this fails, we're going to refer to this flight rule that will guide us on what to do next. So you have policies, procedures, and flight rules that govern your behavior and kind of help um, put a non-emotional framework, a database framework on your response. And that training of the brain helps you when something really bad happens that is not documented, that you've never seen before. And you just remember, okay, that's startling. I don't have time to deal with that right now. I'm going to go through a logic-based approach to figure out what to do next and how to best uh, deal with the, the risk or the manifestation of a risk. That's, I mean, that's such an interesting, like, and you have folks document, like doing those documentation in real time. Are they like reviewing that documentation? Is like that part of that program? Yeah, for, for real time. So say, for example, we're going to go do a spacewalk. The team that's executing that spacewalk will go study the procedures months um, beforehand, um, conduct simulations months beforehand, before they go on console for the actual event. I remember going at home, reading all my flight rules. Okay, if this happens, I'm going to do this. If this happens, I'm going to do this. And so everybody refreshes it when you go in there. And then, you know, say the spacewalk goes off without a problem. It's almost like, well, okay, all right, that was good. Uh, but I've had spacewalks where I've lost communication with my crew member. My crew member had a bag float away that contained tools that we needed to do the next for the next three series of spacewalks. So how do you go about replanning that? Another time where their carbon dioxide levels were building up in the suit. Um, other flight directors have had water build up in the helmet where we almost had a crew member drown. So there's all that that one we never planned for because that never happens. But the way the team dealt with it, it was because they were trained to handle other, other scenarios, life-threatening scenarios. Uh, but the more you practice, the better you get. I mean, that's incredible. Um, you, so how, I mean, in a way, yeah, I mean, this is, we, we talk about that a lot of like your unknown unknowns, the things that you can't plan for are like, how do you go about the process of like trying to identify everything that can go wrong? And like, do you just accept that there will always be some level of? We, we do, but but based on our history, um, you know, with the space shuttle and the space station, it, we're, we're, we're pretty good at it. So say you have a, you know, a given box, a power box. All right. You know, how many levels of redundancy is in this power box? Well, if this thing goes down, it loses power completely. But if this part goes down, it'll just shift over to this other channel and still. So we walk through all of that for each individual box. And then when you're conducting an activity that requires, you know, power to go from that box to this box to this box, then we'll say, all right, well, where um, are there common computers uh, powering that control all these boxes? Yes. Okay. What if that computer goes down and takes out that? So we, it's, it's kind of stacked in a way, but we go through all of that in the design phase of the um, vehicle. So it's, it's not. Um, that we wait until the vehicle is designed to go and do this because you're going to make design decisions based on how you think you're going to operate the vehicle to to buy down risk. So we 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 do that well. We've done that with a lot of our spacecraft. 
Um, and then I find that I carry it over into my my personal world too, where I want to have a you know dissimilar redundancy. We call it. I want to have. I don't want to rely on something, two boxes of one thing. I want to have one box of this thing and another box that's totally separate design. Because what if this fails? I I like that term dissimilar redundancy. Like what mm-hmm. uh, that's a feels like a very strong, yeah, risk management strategy. Is that um you you had mentioned, you know, in a previous conversation around like next worst failure. Oh yeah. Where how does that? I mean, is what is that concept and how does that play into like building dissimilar redundancies? Are those related? It is related. Yes. So. So say, for example, we're planning a mission and I say, we always ask ourselves, what if this box fails? So we address what we're going to do. Now, if you're in that scenario where that box is down and you're limping along, what's the next worst thing that could happen? Um, Well, then this box could go down because if this box went down because this computer was malfunctioning and that computer takes this thing. Okay, so now I have this box and that box and I'm... I can still keep the crew safe, keep the vehicle intact and execute the mission. Great. So now what's the next worst thing that could happen? And you go down this path until you've reached what you think is the point of absurdity, because what are the odds that five things in a row are going to happen or four things in a row? And you kind of just get a feel for that. But I think it's a good way of looking at any, any situation. Say you take on a new job and, um, Uh, Well, I don't want to do it because I don't know how to uh, try it out. What's the worst thing that could happen? Well, I could not be good at it. Okay. And if I'm not good at it, what's the next worst thing? Uh, Well, I could get moved to a different job or I could get fired. Ooh, okay. You know, (laughs) you just walk yourself through it. So that's what it's all about. That's, I mean, uh, it feels like such a, uh, I mean, there's this concept of in continuous improvement of like the five why analysis, where you just kind of ask that same question. And I love this like approach of this, that's like the risk management approach of like, well, what's the next worst thing that can happen? And it almost, (laughs) to your point, it like gets you all the way through. And even at, as you answer each of those, you can almost come up with like mitigations around it. Like, well, yes, example of career, like, well, what if I'm not good at it? Well, I can take training. I can, mm-hmm. you know, I can go find people that are good at it and make right. friends. And- exactly. Yeah. So it's I love that methodology in a way. I'm like, um, it's so yeah. Thank you. Um, you know, we you, you talked a, a lot about these kind of like next worst failures, but like what are some risks that you know, you think about uh, in mission control or your astronauts think about in space mm-hmm. that like people, us people on earth uh, would never think about. Well, let's see. I'll I'll start with, I guess, something more fun. Um, just the astronauts, things that you hear, you need to go to the bathroom, you go to the bathroom. And the chances of you missing uh, are pretty slim. Because there's gravity, you go to the same place every time. If you're up in space and you have to go to the bathroom, it is totally different. So there is risk associated with just using the toilet up there that you could miss fire. And now it is floating away and you got you got this big, you know, uh, turd bomb to pick up, uh, clean up after. Um, so little things like that 
going to the bathroom in space is totally different. Um, or if you're not okay in the morning until you have that cup of coffee, um, remembering that it takes 20 minutes for the water to heat up and the heater on board the space station. And so you've got to hit that bad boy the moment you wake up. Uh, if it's, if you're not going to be cranky in, during the first conversation you have with mission control. So there's little day-to-day -day risks that they think of, but of course, human spaceflight has risks. Um, you know, they're, they're in a vehicle that's roughly 230 miles above earth and would take um, some time to get back in an emergency. Um, they, we worry about space debris. There's all this junk that's out there that, that if penetrated the hole could cause it, you know, us to lose gas in the space station and, um, you know, quite frankly, kill the crew. Um, spacewalks, it looks so much fun when the astronauts are in their suits and playing around outside. But that is one of the most dangerous things that we do um, because that is a mini spacecraft. And if anything hits that, or if they lose cooling, or um, apparently if the cooling system malfunctions and has water coming to the helmet, we apparently can drown a crew member now that we've seen that. Uh, but there's all these things that because you're doing it in zero gravity, and you're doing it in a hostile environment um, that sees, you know, temperature variations between 200 Fahrenheit and, you know, minus 200 Fahrenheit. There's, it's just so different than going to work every day or going to the bathroom every day. Um, for, first question is, is Turd Mom the official? <laughs> I was like, what word could I use that's a G? <laughs> But, you know, when you think about it, that's what it looks like if you have an accident in space because yeah. it floats and it goes everywhere. I can imagine. I well, <laughs> hopefully we'll only ever imagine that. Um, <laughs> uh, I guess going to the part about like space debris, because like that, that feels like something that you could never really like truly yeah. control. No, you can't. Do you like, do you map those out where you know where like the risk areas are? Like, how do you almost like address and mitigate that risk? Yeah. So there is a special um, branch of the government that um, monitors space debris, not NASA, but NASA is one of the customers of that. Um, so they monitor everything that's out there. And if they're, and they know the orbit of our spacecraft. And so if there is something that is going, our spacecraft is going to encounter that this branch of the government is able to track, they will give us an alert and say, hey, you know, 72 hours from now, this thing is going to be close to your orbit. And we will analyze and analyze and then determine whether or not we need to, sometimes we need to adjust the orbit of the space station. So we have to reboost so that we can miss it. Other times where the tracking is not as good on those things, we don't get a lot of advance notice. And so all we do is call up to the crew and say, get in your escape vehicle now and shut the hatch. We will tell you when you can come out. <laughs> and um, those are scary days. Uh, we, I, I've only had that happen twice in my flight director career. I don't know if it's happened since I left. Um, but we do treat track of it, but there's a lot of junk out there. And I wish somebody would come up with a technology, you know, a big old Hoover vacuum cleaner or something to go suck all the debris out of there, suck all the debris out of the ocean and clean up, you know, our environments. But uh, so far uh, that has not been developed. That's wow. And is the, the escape pod, is that like more, um, 
like protected is that why that it's where oh it's just like just in case kind of thing yeah if you're if it is gonna hit say you get a significant event that hits um you may not have time or it may hit a module that is on your way to your spacecraft so it's better to take your chances in the spacecraft itself and, and just come home if the vehicle gets hit so it's all about risk again risk mitigation yeah what, what's the size of the particle i'm tracking um where could where could it impact how can i buy down the risk by being directing the crew members to go into their vehicle and what risk do i accept if that debris hits that vehicle and when i weigh that against it yeah okay it's better for them to be in the vehicle that's yeah wow that's um I mean, I love that you just walked me through the methodology you talked about earlier. Yes, yeah, we live it. I lived it every yeah. day. So, yeah. um, you know, you know, interestingly, we've kind of like talked a lot about like, it, in a way, like physical risk. It like when you talk about like protect the crew, protect the craft, like those both feel like very like physical risks. I think a lot of folks in our industry now are focused kind of like on on cyber and like technological risk comparatively do you um you know does does nasa put one like more emphasis on one versus the other like how how do you think about like the way the almost the dynamic of those two types yeah, of risk? we don't we we never put more emphasis on one or the other but we did have very different teams protecting us from you know from those risks so you you have the physical risk in space you have the physical risk at the space center you know, so we have you know, security guards, we have a gated community, you have to be badged to get in. Um, but we also do have a, a group that um, looks out for cybersecurity threats. Um, I can't dive too much in detail about that, but um, bottom line is there, uh, the space station's a target, um, mission control is a target, and there are bad actors out there uh, every day trying to get into the system. So we have certain safeguards in place, both for mission control and for um, the space station. And as a flight director, um, with the clearance that we had, we, we would get alerts. Um, we would get read into certain scenarios that we need to be cognizant of, of um, in the event that they are successful in, in doing something so we can lead the team um, through that. But the majority of the people that work in mission control and even our astronauts um, aren't read into a number of those scenarios. That's a. Uh, Your face. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, I, like mentally, I can't almost can't process that. Like, <laughs> like the breadth of that kind of approach to things in a way. Um. It's, yeah, it's, it's yeah. It's you have to these days think about all of that. You know what what could be again. What's what's the worst thing that could happen to me if you know the way I designed my network for mission control? Where are my vulnerabilities? How can I um, shore those up and 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 you know reduce the risk of that I could sustain a cyber attack? If I sustain it, how quickly can I isolate it and identify it and isolate it? Um, how quickly can I recover from it? And do I have a backup system? There's all these things at play. I'm just thinking between that, but then also like the concept, like the juxtaposition of that approach with also like, I need to 
mitigate debris in space. Like it's such an interesting kind of like almost opposites <laughs> of approach to that, uh, which is fat is just fascinating. Um, you know, we I, I'd be interested in talking a little bit about kind of like, you know, organizational culture and leadership at now, uh, like in general. And um, I mean, you were with NASA for a long time, and I'm sure you saw the organization go through a lot of change. I'd be interested in like, wh what was that experience like? Like what advice do you have for people trying to navigate change like that? Yeah, no, happy to. So one of my well favorite books of, of change management is Leading Change by Cotter. Um, I, I have read that after every major what I what I determined to be like a major significant event at NASA that has changed our culture. Um, and it speaks to me in different ways every time that I read it. Um, but some one of the big events that I had the um, misfortune of of being a part of was the Columbia accident. Um, and watching what NASA became um, after that, well, just getting us to survive that when when you have that traumatic event where you lose seven of your family members, basically, because those crew members were our family, and you start to question what contribution did I have um, that that led to that? Um, was there something in the design that I should have seen? Was there something in a meeting where I should have spoken up? And watching the workforce go through that grieving process, but also um, marching forward with a resilience that and a determination that I had not seen previously, um, that we will not let this happen to another one of our family members. And um, we questioned everything. Uh, it was due to foam we we learned hitting the underside of the shuttle. So the people in that that uh, are responsible for the manufacturing of that foam and the application of that foam started asking themselves, "All right, how can we mitigate this completely? How can we make sure no piece of foam ever falls off? Can we re redesign the foam? Can we change how we apply it?" And they went through all that did some tests, the foam still flies off. Okay, we've done everything that we can do here. We've mitigated it to a, to an acceptable level, not to zero. So now we know foam is always gonna fall off. Um, how can we make sure we get eyes on it? Uh, oh, we're gonna install a lot more cameras on the launch pad. All right, great. When that thing takes off and clears the launch pad, how are we gonna get eyes on it? Oh, we're going to add some cameras to the external tank so we can watch it. Oh, okay, great. When that external tank goes away, what if we miss something? How are we going to tell if the shuttle, if there was damage? Um, well, we'll get some cameras. Um, all right. Uh, who's going to have these cameras? How, what's the fidelity of these cameras? Will there be infrared? Will there... So we marched through all these steps to the point where we could never really mitigate the risk to zero, but we did everything we could possibly think of to at least understand what problem we were faced with. So we would never come back and just not know. Um, so that was one of the big ones. Um, and, and then I can also talk about, you know, end of shuttle program. That was interesting. And then the start of commercial uh, uh, was also interesting, but I don't know if you had any questions about Columbia. I'm speechless. Once again, I don't know how to articulate how that must the experience must have been like i um 
you know, to a much lesser extent, organizations going through cultural change, I think sometimes, you know, like lose momentum when, you know, they try to experience this change and you see like this initial burst of like, we are going to do things like how, how did NASA sustain that mentality? Yeah, it was uh, granted easier for us because the the price we had to pay um, was so uh, devastating, um, and you couldn't forget about it. We wouldn't let people forget about it. We 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 had people die. In most companies, cultural changes you know is uh, in, initiated because. Uh, we want to pick up a new business line or we failed a product line and we need to reinvigorate. And so making it um, personal is how you keep it alive. Uh, losing a crew member was obviously easy to keep personal. Um, but w- when that company uh, had that product line fail, what did it do to the employees? You know, did Did people lose jobs? Did people lose bonuses? Did people lose benefits? Um, Keeping that in the forefront because people will forget what initially kicked off this cultural change because they get so involved in the cultural change and then they get busy and they forget. Um, And so with NASA, there was an 18 year cycle between some of our significant events and we had um, uh, Challenger between Challenger and Columbia, there were 18 years. And when 18 years rolled around again, we thought, oh my gosh, we could be forgetting. This generation of people here could be forgetting. And so how do you keep it in the forefront? So businesses just need to figure out how do you make it personal? How do you make them remember what it felt like that caused you to kick off this organizational change or cultural change? Thank you for, yeah, for sharing that. That's, um, I mean, that makes sense. And it it is like, a, like, in a way, it ties to like, our, just like a human nature. Yeah, of, yeah you get busy, you move on to the next thing. But and, tying to an emotional response always makes things stronger. And you, I mean, you see it through like, senses of like, you when you smell something from childhood, mm-hmm. you like associate a stronger feeling in some way. Um, yep. You, you mentioned uh, end of shuttle, and, you know, kind of like the the other changes there. And I think it that's interesting in the sense of like disruption to an industry. How do you like, how do you roll with that kind of disruption? How, um, how have you seen that kind of like, I guess, NASA handle that kind of like disruption and the cultural change associated with that? Yeah. It, you know, the, the end of shuttle kind of, tied to the start of commercials. So our, our president had decided we're going to retire the shuttle and we're going to hire one of these commercial companies to build our next spacecraft. So anybody that had ever come to work at NASA um, who you know grew up watching the Apollo missions and had this NASA pride because NASA is the only one in human spaceflight. And and you know I I was a what I called a shuttle hugger. You know, I'm like, don't take my shuttle away for the love of God. Don't take it away. Um, th- that was the mentality when they ripped the shuttle, you know, from, from our, our grasp. And, and then we're looking around and we said, who are we? Um, if we're not the ones flying the shuttle, oh, okay, we have the space station. Oh, but wait, we have no vehicle 
U.S. vehicle to get our crew members in the space. NASA has failed. You know, this is how we were processing it. And why do they get to do it? Give us the money. We'll build something. And we were building something and you cut our funding. So there was this bitterness. Um, we can we can still do this. We're still relevant. But I think you know, it, reflecting back on that time, it was all, um, it was the right thing to do. You're trying to stimulate a new economy in low Earth orbit and lunar orbit and uh, help these different companies come up with different ways of doing business. But at the time, the people working at NASA did not see that. They, you're taking our shuttle. You're taking my job. You're you're challenging my relevancy. So there was a mourning period that we had to allow people to have. And certain people could not come out of that. And they went off and a lot of them quit and went into oil and gas um, because that was booming at the time. And others, you know, after they finished mourning, thought, okay, I'm going to, I am the smartest person in, you know, in the room with human spaceflight. I'm going to go help these guys. I'm going to go help them because uh, eventually they're going to fly our crews and I want them. I don't want them to feel what I felt at Columbia. So everybody then went in with this noble intent to help the commercial providers, some of which wanted our help and some of which did not. Um, but we did our best. And, and once they started succeeding, then NASA felt better. And then NASA got some other um, uh, other funding to pursue the design of vehicles um, beyond low Earth orbit. And it gave them another identity. So I, it was a challenging time, but um, it was something that absolutely needed to happen. We just needed to have leaders in place um, to be able to help people navigate the challenges and focus on why this change was occurring. Yeah, that um, like that. I mean, part you mentioned around like focusing on the why is so strong. Like I think oftentimes when things just happen, there's distrust, and you know, but like walking people through like understanding that why gets to a you know a lot of that core of you know the decision wasn't made to make a decision the decision was made for reasons by smart people who you trust and follow and um that's really powerful i think in like in that change cycle for mm -hmm. folks um i guess like you know you're you're barrios now what uh do you find that the like the parallels between kind of like what you do now and like handling change now versus handling change at like a government NASA are similar? Are they different? Like what's, what's that? The, the technical challenges and the personnel challenges are similar, you know, leading people on and solving technical problems. But um, I have learned so much two years outside of the federal government about things that we did as a federal agent that we thought were enabling um, companies to do business with us that are actually roadblocks to it. Um, things that are challenging for no reason at all. But I never knew because I was never on this side. Um, 
And so I, I, you know, I go back to the folks that I used to work with and say, Hey, I, would you like to hear, you know, things I wish I would have known by Ginger Carrick, uh, you know, to make myself a better civil servant leader. Yes. Yes. I'd love to hear that. Okay. And so I go back with a positive spin on it. Like, how could I have known? How could you have known? Um, but let me help you bridge the gap so that um, we can find ways to make it easier to do business together. And and I similarly, I, I take lessons from the civil servant side of the house and try to help um, our folks that work at Barrios that have only worked in as a contractor. Hey, well, you know what you, you don't know is we have to consider this when making this decision. Oh, okay. So hopefully between, you know, I can bridge the gap between the two worlds and help them um, work better together in the future. Interesting. What I'm, um, this is my, one of my favorite risk management questions, but like what, what keeps you up at night around what you do? Oh, um, it's different now that I'm working for Barrios, um, because, you know, I, I am the chief strategy officer for Barrios. So it's, you know, am I making all of the right decisions? Am I providing all the right suggestions to our leadership team to help us uh, not only stay relevant in the human space flight industry, but to grow as respected leaders? So now that keeps me up at night. When I was at NASA, it was always, did, it, did something I do, did a decision I made at work today, is that going to manifest itself two years later, three years later? and killing the crew um, or being a, or uh, uh, um, you know destroying the vehicle or not being able to execute the mission. I always in every decision that I made at NASA fast forwarded. If I say, if I agree to this now and I say it's okay for us not to do testing on this part because there's schedule pressure, what am, what am I missing in that test that two years from now? might manifest itself in an accident. So it's it's two very different things that used to keep me up at night and that keep me up at night now. Yeah. I love that you put a time horizon on it of like, is this decision now, how will it impact, you know, two years down the line? I think yes. that it's a problem a lot of hum like I'm just gonna call it like humanity struggles with. Like I don't know what decisions I'm making today may have an impact on my life two years from now but yeah. how did you develop that mentality of think was it purely just through experience and seeing how the like how did you start to think in that manner i think i've always thought in that manner um because i had the bottom ripped out once when i didn't um when i was 11 years old my, uh, I went to my dad's work and he was having a heart attack and I watched him um, basically take his last breath, although they say he died in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. I, I watched him struggle. They put him in the ambulance and I, my first thoughts were, um, you know, hey, can I spend the night with dad? Can I eat his jello? Because he's going to be okay, you know, and uh, when he wasn't, I was not prepared for that. Um, and I did not have a good reaction to that. And so I think that's where my next worst failure programming started uh, before I even got to NASA and had a term for it. It was, all right, this just happened. 
I need to be prepared if it goes well, if it goes okay, and if it goes poorly. Um, and and that mindset kind of carried forward into decision making. Um, all right, I, I, I'm my friends invited me out to this party. Um, and I have a test tomorrow. All right, if I go and I have a good time and come home, or if I go and I have a really good time and forget to study, or I could stay at home and study. And if I do that and I get an A, and then I could get into college. And so I I've always look that way because a lot of people are are particularly these days it seems are in 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 the instant gratification mode (laughs) and you can do that but at the expense of things and I just like to think through them before I make a decision um I'm I'm sorry I I appreciate you sharing that story oh yeah no I always it made me who I am today it's okay yeah um I the your point around like instant gratification is is always yeah i mean it's been like a theme i think of this conversation in a lot of ways of like is there like what are the math like your massive benefits in taking the the almost like the mental model just like one more extra step forward rather than just being like okay like when i make this decision what's the impact but it's when i make this decision what's the impact and then what what's the next impact after that in every way Mm -hmm. um so yeah, that's makes a lot a ton of sense. And I'll go back to my snacking example. <laughs> Perfect. I need the mental model decision just like short short term to, to not go to the store. So um those were those were kind of all like the the like broad risk management questions that I had. Was there any other <laughs> any other thoughts around like risk management strategy or your kind of like time that, that you were hoping to share? before we um, even risk of that? <laughs> no, just, uh, you know, we I talk a lot about risk management, but risk management requires leadership. Mm-hmm. You have to have the right leaders in place to, um, to build a team around them that will execute this risk management model that we've been talking about. And I've had the opportunity to observe quite a number of different leaders, you know, in my time and different approaches um I'm, I'm actually oh I, I put it here in case so i just got this book i'm so excited so this is gene Kranz, and it's his second book tough and competent so he was one of the original flight directors um he was i want to say he was number two or three i, I was number 60 six zero um so he was one of our founding fathers but um he led the team after the apollo one fire and has a lot of experience. Um, so I'm anxious to read his book. But you know, his book is titled Tough and Competent. And and I I agree that those are characteristics of a of a good leader. Uh, you have to be resilient and be able, like I said, to disassociate emotion um, from the logical problem that you're trying to solve and lead your team through that in order to manage risk. Um, but I think leaders today also need um, emotional intelligence. Um, need to understand um, themselves, how other people see them, um, understand other people and how to adapt their leadership style to get people that think differently than they do to march down the same path that they want them to go. Um, And then have some um, humility 
we none of us know everything and we're never going to know everything and we'll never be the smartest person in the room um and finding who is the smartest person in the room for certain subjects and bringing the best out of them so that the team can achieve their mission um people that can be good communicators um and can um enhance the performance of their team uh, uh, by providing not, I hate the word constructive criticism, it drives me crazy. I I call it performance enhancing feedback because who doesn't want to enhance their performance? Who would not like some feedback? Um, but having leaders that will do that for people, um, I think is really, really important. I, um, I, I appreciate you. I agree with all of that. And I love this term performing enhancing feedback. I think there's this like, I mean, I'm a fairly new ish leader. Um, mm -hmm. and I think oftentimes something I've struggled with is uh, like, I know it's my job to make other people better, but sometimes giving them criticism can feel like bad, even yeah. though it for their own good and for the good of the company. And so it's, I mean, it's also something candidly, like as a new parent that I've experienced of like, I have to discipline my two-year-old and like that does not feel good, but I know it's for the best for him. And yep. it's, so it's, I mean, I love this, that concept of performance enhancing feedback, but like almost through the lens of also, um, being emotionally intelligent about it. Like, yes. Like, yeah. Cause some people, you know, that, you know, really well be like, Hey, that's not your A game. You know, you, the way you said that didn't make any darn sense. I need you to really step it up and do this. Oh, okay. I got you. And other people. Okay. That was a really good try. I need you to, which I have some suggestions if you're interested in hearing them that might make it easier next time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. OK. Uh, then do you remember how that person looked at you and twisted their head when you were, got to this chart? All right. They weren't following you. So you need to speak better about reading visual cues. Oh, OK. It's <laughs> you just walk them through it a different way. But adaptability. Yeah. And I mean, like what you just said, is like even the way you position that, it's about how how can you make the person receptive? to that feedback mm -hmm. and it takes that emotional intelligence to get them there. Um, yeah. I mean, thank you for sharing that. I, uh, I'm going to start, I'm going to start using all this. <laughs> Good. Um, Good. So I will, I will take credit for that terminology. Um, I worked with a guy that uh, provided training to us at NASA named Craig DeVizio. Um, and he uh, taught us a class on performance enhancing feedback and that class changed my life. I'm like, wow, I never thought to look at it that way. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to look them up. So, <laughs> um, so one of the, I mean, want to end a little bit on like, we, we do this thing called risk or that okay. where, where we talk about some risks that may go kind of either way. Um, so I, I didn't really find a good way to bring this into the conversation, but um, do aliens exist? Oh, gosh. <laughs> or no. I can frame it in a different way. Of like, oh, which... oh, my God. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Okay. Then which do you think is a riskier alien for us to discover? Like a less evolved like bacteria 
that we don't know how to address or like a highly involved, like more intelligent than us species? Okay. If they're highly evolved, that means I could probably have a conversation with them. Bacteria, I can't. And I've seen what bacteria can do to this planet left unchecked. So I would take my chances on, you know, with the risk trade, I would say it'd be lower risk for the one that's smarter than us. Cause I can at least have a conversation. I've talked to people that are a lot smarter than I am before and gotten what I needed, but um, I really don't usually win with bacteria because, you know, it requires antibiotics and I'm allergic to a lot of the good ones. Huh? Okay. <laughs> that's, that's yeah and i i mean yeah it probably makes sense you get to see how my brain works yeah, these questions I, like, too. I love that thought process there yeah um okay i'm gonna chew on that one now um maybe the next one then and i'm gonna because i know you have a background in in physics is which do you think will mm-hmm. have a bigger impact on the like space community like artificial intelligence or quantum computing Ooh, a greater impact on the space community i think artificial intelligence um particularly on missions beyond um well to mars and beyond our solar system um when you when you go to Mars, you can't really call Houston anymore when you have a problem. And so having smart systems on board that can um, tell you what you need to fix or um, create a solution for you would be good. But um, it's in its infancy right now. And um, if you think back to when social media came out, the intent of it was to provide connection and communication. And, and now it's being used as a tool for divisiveness. Um, I worry, I would worry about my crew member uh, on a ship with some AI that could uh, be smart enough to take over. And they have all these movies that where it does that. Um, so I don't know. Quantum physics, at least, is, um, you know, it's based on actual physics, not so so maybe it's a safer bet but i think if you if you treated ai the right way and built it the right way you could get more bang for the buck yeah. you use your next next worst failure yes, on it. yes. <laughs> i just I, did that i'm so sorry no. yeah no <laughs> um it takes over the spaceship and yeah well i mean like i could have asked about hal and Oh yes, that, that yeah. made me nervous a long time too. Yeah, that, that movie, movie gives me the creeps. So like, I didn't want to talk yeah. about it again. But, uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> um. So then, I guess like one more around like when you think about like cyber risks, like I think one of the things we always like are those more likely to come from inside your organization or outside? Is it from like someone clicking the wrong link, or is it from you know, an adverse, like a bad actor in some way. Ah, um, are they more likely to come inside or out? So let's start with, uh, it depends. Um, so inside your organization, if you don't hire the right people, you have the right screening process to know that you're not 
hiring somebody with malicious intent, or you don't provide the right training, um, or you don't have the right internal safeguards. So if you hire the right people, provide the right training, have some safeguards, you can buy down insider risk. Outside your organization, however, you have no control about the people that are out there. Um, all you can do is you know, boost your fence line and try to make it difficult to get in. Um, but I, I think knowing what I know about what is out there, uh, I would be more fearful of external than internal for the, the right organization with the right culture and the right you know leadership. That makes sense. Yeah. Like if you're building it the right way inside, then like yeah. you have more control, you have more insight, you can kind of like strengthen that away. So yeah. there's more mitigations you can put in place yeah. than you can to external and the talent out there external is quite yeah. significant. <laughs> Those are kind of all the, the risk of that questions. Um, you had mentioned, you know, leading change by John Cotter, tough and confident by Gene Kranz. Any other like books or media that you'd recommend to Oh, yeah. Um, What got you here won't get you there, um, which is by Goldsmith. I have it back on the shelf over there. And then um, I'm a huge fan of this lady. I I met her and her name is Anne Rhodes and it's built on values. So um, we did a values-based culture exercise at Barrios to try to really ensure that um, the le- the values that our leadership team declared are important to us are um, adequately infused into the culture of the organization. And she describes an approach in this book that we used at Barrios and that um, I have participated in. I'm also a regent on the Texas Tech University System Board of Regents. And for all five of our universities, we conducted values-based culture exercises uh, according to her program. And I think it yields really great results for companies that are interested in doing that. Um, And then I have a book on emotional intelligence 2.0. I didn't like the 1.0, but the 2.0 is pretty good. And I forget what the author was. Yeah, but that was a, a great book and helpful in my leadership journey as well. Um, real quick on the the Ann Rhodes uh, built on cultures. Do you all have like your like your Barrios company cultures kind of like listed out? Like, do you mind sharing what your? Yeah, we have our company values um, that we identified. And so the first one is Barrios family that um, we want to make sure that our companies feel, um, you know, valued and supported and uh, both personally and professionally. And then our second value is work-life balance, believe it or not, because um, you know, human spaceflight can be crazy at times. And we're not promising everybody's going to work 40 hour weeks, but we promise you that when you know, we're working on a mission and you have to put in that 60 hour a week that we're going to encourage you to take a couple of days off. Then our third value, it's, it's weird because it has the word value in the value, but it's called extraordinary value in that we want to we want to invest so much in our employees that they are not able to just do their jobs, but to go above and beyond in doing their jobs, you know, anticipating customers needs and being innovative and and um, just being the experts and the go-to people in the field. And then our last one is social responsibility. Um, Wherever Barrios is, and we have a contingent in Huntsville and here in Houston, a small contingent in Florida and Langley and um, also in Colorado. 
we want to make the community around us wherever we are better and and donate our time and our efforts. So if you think about those values, Barrios family, um, work-life balance, uh, social responsibility, and extraordinary value, you'd never guess we were a human spaceflight company. Um, and we we just we want to we're a people focused company and and I love the journey that we went on to identify that about ourselves and how we've owned it in everything that we do. And, and I really, I'm really fortunate to, I had 30 years with NASA and I'm fortunate to have found this particular company because their values really match um, my own quite well. Yeah. That's amazing. I, I love those. I <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing. Um, those are all the questions I had. Any other like last thoughts or things you wanted to share with? Um, not, nothing. Just I just want to thank you for the time. I, I'm very passionate about these subjects, risk management, leadership, culture change, if you can't tell. Um, and and I like to continue to share um, what I've learned in my uh, the journey of my career with others so that they don't have to um, learn it for themselves in some cases like I did. Uh, just hear some relevant experiences that they can apply to their own careers and their own personal lives. So thank you for the opportunity to speak to you today. Well, thank you so much, Ginger. That was a, this was a, just an absolute pleasure to be a part of getting a chance to talk to you more. So thanks. That's all we got. Thank you all for listening.